when I realized marriage was becoming this thing people were talking about. But when I tried to go back and forensically figure it out, it led me to some weird places, like Fox News in the wake of the midterms last November. Also, single women are breaking for Democrats by 30 points. You remember this moment. A whole bunch of Donald Trump's favored candidates had lost. And host Jesse Waters was trying to figure out married why. Women, married men go for Republicans by double digits. But single women and voters under 40 have been captured by Democrats. So we need these ladies to get married. And it's time to fall in love and just settle down. Guys, go put a ring on it. I just want to pause to note how insulting and cynical this take is. As if once a woman gets married, she joins a robot army of Republican enthusiasts. But anyway. A few months later, conservative commentator Stephen Crowder had a marriage moment, too. I have been living with a proverbial boot on my neck for going on years now. At the time, his own marriage was falling apart, though he seemed genuinely shocked that was even possible. And no, this was not uh, my choice. My then wife decided that she didn't want to be married anymore. And in the state of Texas, that is completely permitted. Crowder's rant coincided with a political push to roll back no-fault divorce in states like Louisiana and Texas and Nebraska. As this marriage discourse snowballed, Rebecca Traister took note. After all, she wrote a whole book on women who are delaying or even avoiding marriage. It's called All the Single Ladies. She says we are in the epoch of single women. And she knows this dawning epoch scares people. Every few years, she notices a panic. It moves in waves. And every time, by the way, the wave, one of the characteristics of the wave is we never talk about this. Liberals ignore this. <laughs> it's a constant refrain. But over the last month, this conservative panic burst into the mainstream. You might have noticed one article after another in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, all arguing that marriage is good for you, makes you richer, makes your kids more successful. Some took this a little further, arguing marriage should be a policy goal. That really revved Rebecca up. Think tanks, economists, mainstream media, they love touting more marriage as the answer to all kinds of problems experienced by Americans. It's wrong. It's, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. It's not a good prescription for a million reasons. Today on the show, why, no, just getting married is not going to fix what ails you. Sorry, Grandma. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. So right now, this marriage panic, it feels very 2023 part of the larger gender-based backlash that includes the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the onslaught of anti-trans legislation in state houses around the country. But Rebecca Traister, she says, while that is true, we've also been here before. There have been all kinds of 
panics over marriage and singlehood in the United States. There were laws passed in some of the first colonies that unattached people, unmarried people, had to somehow be enfolded into a family unit led by a land-owning man because single people might be the cause of disorder. Various marriage panics have taken place in many iterations. In the early 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt was giving speeches about race suicide, which was a eugenics-linked theory, but it was specifically because he was worried that white middle-class Protestants weren't marrying and reproducing enough to keep up with the, there were of course waves of immigrant populations coming into the United States. And he spoke of the responsibility of white people to marry and then have lots of children because otherwise this thinking went, they they were committing race suicide. They were gonna extinguish the white race. I mean, these panics have taken many different forms and they are always linked to race. These panics are linked to race and often fail to account for racism. Rebecca says, just look at how one of these marriage panics played out back in the 1960s. It started with something called the Moynihan Report. That was a report compiled by Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan that took a look at poverty in Black communities and wound up identifying one of the chief causes of poverty as family formation, specifically the prevalence of single Black mothers. But once you start peeling back the layers of this panic, the more complicated it gets. For instance, while there were plenty of Black single parents in the 1960s, that was a relatively new thing. In the early 20th century, Black Americans had incredibly high marriage rates, higher than white Americans. But then a series of government interventions cut Black families off from jobs, transportation, resources, and actually passed a series of policies that subsidized housing for white families, the creation of the white middle class in the middle of the the 20th century, which was basically handouts for white people. It turns out these handouts for white people actually encouraged them to get married. So while black families stopped being so likely to couple up, white people were more likely to settle down together. It did not necessarily make them happier. After all, Feminist thinker Betty Friedan emerged in the wake of these policies. It's very interesting that white women and black women were pushed in ways that separated their experience, right? That white women were entombed in a very well-funded middle class, early married domestic existence, and that black women were cut off from those economic resources in ways that actually did lead to lower marriage rates, less marital stability. And, you know, it was a way of separating Black women's experience from white women's experience. So let's talk about why the marriage idea has come back into the discourse now. In the last few weeks, there's just been a ton of coverage in The Washington Post and The New York Times and The Atlantic of this one book. It's called The Two-Parent Privilege. Can you just explain the central argument of this book? Yeah, it's by uh, an economist named Melissa Kearney. And I want to be really clear that she, unlike many marriage proselytizers, um, does acknowledge the need for economic programs um, to create more stable marriages. And I want to credit her for that. She says we need a child tax credit. She wants to be very careful that she's not judging people for their decisions, all of those things. But then at the same time, (laughs) 
<laughs> right. It's a funny thing about that book because she does want to be really careful. And she's also appears to be very concerned in her writing and says, oh, this is something people are whispering about and they won't say it out loud, even though I would argue that they say it out loud all the time. I think that's a tremendous fallacy that she's that she's putting forth, that this is not something we're allowed to talk about. You know, we're whispering it about it, you know, when in fact you're writing about it in the New York Times or on the cover of Harper's or in the Atlantic. <laughs> but uh, she's very concerned with being understood as reflexively conservative. And so she takes pains to acknowledge that she believes in fundamentally progressive economic policies. But at the same time, the book's thesis is simply and baldly that having two parent households presents a kind of solution. In the two parent privilege, marriage is a solution to all manner of problems, but mostly problems with children. Kids with married parents, the author argues, tend to have fewer behavioral problems, be more educated, and earn more once they enter the workforce. As a result, the book argues we should treat marriage as a serious policy issue that is worth promoting. To Rebecca, that conclusion is annoyingly narrow. One of the points in the book that really struck me is that she says, I think early on, she says, I know everybody has their own story, but I'm an economist and I deal in numbers. How does she account for stories that, like, you know, some marriages are unstable or abusive or violent? Like, right. Those are stories, too. So this is my this is where I think there's a fundamentally unbridgeable gap between Kearney's approach to this and mine. Marriage is not a policy you can legislate. It is not, in fact, numbers. And there are numbers attached to it. She is absolutely correct, and I want to credit her with this too, that marriage, as it has become more optional, has increasingly become the purview of wealthy Americans, right? That is absolutely true. But the idea that simply telling people to marry is going to get those without those economic advantages, the economic stability they need, is blatantly false and also impossible because marriage is not an indistinct numerical thing that you can order people to do. And we know from living our lives, whether we are married, whether we are multiply married, whether we are never married, whether we have ever been in love, whether we have ever had sex, that all of those forms of connection are in many ways ungovernable. You cannot simply conjure stable marital partnerships on command because an economist tells you that it is better to have a two-parent family. I think you would argue that a lot of the privileges that look like marital privileges are actually privileges of wealth. Am I getting that right? Yes. They are privileges of stability. I think the author of this book, though, should argue that even the children of wealthy single parents are less, quote unquote, successful. Would you agree with that? Or do you think she's right on that? You know, it's an interesting question. Do I think she's right on that? Um, well, again, it comes down to, in some ways, a lot of what the a lot of the benefit that marriage tends to give already wealthy people, which is the further accumulation of wealth and stability. 
do two economically stable people with all of the advantages, if they are in a functional marriage, create more stability and privilege for their children? Yes, absolutely. Now, wealthier people who are in bad marriages, whether they stay in those marriages and and are living in a home that is fundamentally unhappy, that is another question that I think should be addressed, right? Like, how good is that for children? Because you can't just magic your marriage into a good marriage if you have a bad marriage. Right. There are these questions about what happens when you have an unhappy marriage. Is the, is the advice then that you should stay in your unhappy marriage because the, the further privileges of, of having two incomes and two bodies outweigh whatever unhappiness or dissatisfaction plague that union. Yeah. I was looking at some of the research around divorce to try to understand some of this marriage stuff better. And I was struck that, you know, following the state-by-state rollout of no-fault divorce, researchers found that it led to dramatic decreases in suicide among wives. Yes. I think we all agree that's a good outcome. No, this is this is one of the, the realities of good marriages are terrific. I don't I am I, I want to make really clear I am married and I write about that in all the single ladies. Good marriages, good partnerships, I don't care whether somebody's married or not, right? Um, finding partnership that's terrific. It is wonderful. And by the way, one of the sort of drivers of this you should all get married rhetoric seems to be the suspicion that like nobody wants to get married anymore or that feminists have opposed marriage or that feminists don't like love or whatever. I mean, but do we all live in the world? (laughs) Do we all know that not everybody, but a very, very high percentage of human beings are driven toward some form of romantic, loving connection, partnership, sexual connection. But fewer people are getting married, right? That is real. The culture still incentivizes it. I mean, like, I can count up the game shows where the prize is, like, getting married to someone, right? Um, But At the same time, people aren't making the choice, and that's what panics people, yeah? Right, but people aren't making the choice because it's really hard to find a person to partner with in some lifelong way. That's been a reality of human existence for a really long time. It's just that in earlier eras, there was more economic, social, sexual requirement that you, in order to have a legitimized entrance into adulthood, you kind of had to get married in your early 20s. And that's part of how you wind up with people married to people who might not have been great matches. When we come back, there are policies that are proven to foster healthy families. So why aren't we talking about them? Is your concern with this book, The Two-Parent Privilege, what the author is saying or more how it could be weaponized by people who have a different kind of intent than she does? It's the eagerness with which it's taken up. So um, 
these books get attention because, and, and this is my, this is the heart of my concern, because it presents marriage, again, an impossible to legislate institution whose quality and results depend entirely on the human beings in question as a kind of easy fix for fundamental inequities in this country while we are not doing the things that actually could address those inequities. We know this. I, I said in my column that, you know, I, I listed a couple of other examples. This notion that if you, um, you know, use paper straws, right, that it's your responsibility <laughs> to combat the, the climate crisis by using paper straws instead of, like, addressing Exxon. So, like, sure, it's a thing, but it's not the thing. <laughs> right. It is a tiny thing that is in the face of what the government could do. So if we actually wanted to provide resources for kids to thrive, that is within the realm of possibility for government. You can pass policies that give all kinds of families more money. You can make housing more affordable. You can restore reproductive health care. You can make health care itself more affordable. These are all policies that would have a direct impact on how families thrived, on how children did. It's interesting because I feel like so often on the conservative side, you hear those kinds of programs talked about as things that encourage reliance or encourage Hmm. Single parents to say stay single. Well, there's a longtime conservative trope about you know how single women want the government to be their daddies or their husband. When the government played that role for white people, you know the, the government is perfectly happy to provide, and and did in the middle of the 20th century, provide housing and education in order to build a white middle class. There is the, the conservative line that like reliance on the government is somehow soft, fe- fundamentally feminized, racialized and bad, right? It's a welfare queen metaphor. You know, the, the marriage model that I think many conservatives would like to return to is one that would leave women dependent on men, which was the case historically for housing and, and social sanction and the ability to have families and a sex life. Should we call this show, No, You Shouldn't Get Married, unless you want to? No. <laughs> no. Right. Unless you want to. No, you should call this show, No, You no, you Shouldn't Have to Get Married. <laughs> like, that's the fight. I, I've always been really clear. I am not against marriage. I mentioned before, I am married. Does it ever get weird talking about this with your husband? No. <laughs> no. Uh, it's not. I'm not against marriage. I think marriage has evolved. I think that the, like, the shifts that we have made in this country around marriage are helping to preserve it and be something that people actually want to enter. I want the government to support people who take a variety of paths around love, around parenthood, around sex, around work, around education, and be able to thrive and marriage as some blunt idea is not going to offer them those resources, but there are policies that would. Rebecca, it is always a joy to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. 
Rebecca Traster is a writer at large for New York Magazine. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter, X, whatever you're calling it. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.